Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. This is Mark Graben. This is episode 107 of my podcast for December 20th, 2010. I'm very happy to be joined today by author Daniel H. Pink. We're going to be talking about his most recent book called Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. Dan's previously the author of books including A Whole New Mind, The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, which is a manga uh, format Japanese comic book um, subtitled The Last Career Guide You'll Ever Need. And his first book was called Free Agent Nation, The Future of Working for Yourself. Now, Dan is a free agent himself. He worked in the White House, though, uh, as a chief speechwriter to Vice President Al Gore from 1995 to 1997 and has held other positions in politics and government. He's a graduate of Northwestern University, and he has a law degree from Yale Law School. So today we're going to be talking about his book, Drive, and some of the overlap between the ideas there that will be very familiar to lean thinkers and students of Dr. W. Edwards Deming. So I want to thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes at leanpodcast.org. Well, Dan, it's a great pleasure to have you here on the podcast today. Thanks for taking some time to chat. Mark, it's a pleasure to be on on your podcast. Well, we're going to talk about your book, Drive, and there's a number of core themes in the book that I think are familiar and relevant to people in the lean world, but the book certainly adds um, you know, a lot of the research basis and a lot of um, new ideas there. I wonder if you could talk first, um, just kind of introduce one of the core ideas in the book about um, incentives and some of the dysfunctions around how uh, research has shown that incentives can actually make performance worse. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the big uh, concepts uh, in the book. And the book, you know, what I did in this book, Mark, is, is look at about 50 years of, of social science on human motivation. And, you know, field studies and laboratory experiments. And what's so fascinating about it is, is that all of us, you know, know about motivation. We have this intuitive sense about motivation. We have this intuitive sense of the physics of motivation. The same thing we have an intuitive sense of the physics of our natural world. And we tend to believe that if we, if you reward something, you get more of it. And if you punish it, you get less of it. And that's true a lot of the times. But what this science shows is that it's actually not true all the time. Um, and, you know, that to me overturns an orthodoxy that most of us didn't even realize was an orthodoxy. And again, what the, what the science shows, I think is particularly relevant in the world of work is that for relatively simple routine algorithmic types of tasks, the, the classic suite of motivator, the classic kind of incentive, you know, what I call an if then reward, as in if you do this, then you get that. For the simple algorithmic stuff, they work pretty well. They get you to focus, look straight ahead, barrel into the right answer. But for the more complicated conceptual creative work, those kinds of if-then motivators, the science is pretty darn clear, just don't work very well and can often backfire. And um, that was a, you know, a surprise to me. I think it's a surprise to many businesses. And I think what alarms us a little bit is that many of our businesses are operating mm-hmm. based on a very outdated, erroneous kind of uh, old wives' tale uh, knowledge of motivation. Yeah, so in the book you mention a, f- a name that would be familiar to, I think, my listeners and my blog readers, Frederick Taylor. This is going back yeah. 100 years. And I guess if you're paying someone to shovel pig iron, uh, the more you pay them, the more they might shovel. But th- you know, most of us don't work 
uh, in that realm. And, and so I think it's good to to revisit this in, in modern think age. Right? I, I know, but I think what's interesting is 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 how is that even you know we we, we sort of accommodated ourselves to think that that we have moved from shoveling pig iron to doing white collar work. Uh, but I think that what, one of the things that we've, we didn't quite fully understand was that for a long time in this country, especially a lot of white collar work was routine. It wasn't, it wasn't following rules with your body as, as shoveling pig iron is, but it was uh, following rules with your brain. It was very algorithmic work. It was adding up columns of figures. It was doing things that you could reduce to a, a recipe. Mm -hmm. And today, you know, relatively few people, either in the blue collar or the white collar workforce, are doing that kind of work. It just isn't very valuable anymore. And what we have is we have this kind of motivational scheme built for that kind of work, for rule-based work. And today we have more and more people doing work that requires creativity, conceptual thinking. Um, and so I think, you know, the system is profoundly out of sync in many ways. Well, I, I it's good that you mentioned uh, the blue-collar world. I saw an article the other day about General Electric bringing more factories back into the U.S., and a lot of those factories are operating under more of a, a lean, team-based yeah. culture. And there was a quote in the article, 29-year-old college graduate that used to work in the mortgage industry, and, well, you know, I guess manufacturing maybe is a better place compared to the mortgages right now. He said, well, this isn't a grimy place, I'm paraphrasing, where you check your brain yeah. at the door, we actually have to make a lot of decisions. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that's, see, that's the thing that drives, I mean, that's just my own personal beef, my own personal uh, annoyance is that, I don't, I, I don't even want to start a rant here, but let me start a rant. Um, you know, if you look at the, you know, if you look at the, um, you know, one of the things, if you look at, say, political ads and people talk about good middle class jobs, and the visual representation of that is very often a 59-year-old burly white man with a, some grease on his shirt. And first of all, that's not what the typical middle-class job in America is today. You want to know a typical middle-class job? Show me a 41-year-old Hispanic woman in healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, what's more, that's not even what blue-collar work is today. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, thanks in part to the lean, you know, revolution that 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 made, you know, that allowed the United States to have an incredible manufacturing output with fewer people doing more sophisticated work. A lot of the folks on the assembly line now are folks. Well, this guy probably might has a four year college degree. A lot of folks right. have associate degrees. They're programming computers. Mm -hmm. They're working in teams. They're making decisions. Um, and um, so even blue collar work is in this country, at least, is not routine anymore. So I'd be curious to get your thoughts on you know, the idea of employee suggestions. You see this in manufacturing and in healthcare, and a lot of times people kind of agonize over the idea of, do we need to have a reward system? You know, mm -hmm. Do we need to pay people for making suggestions to improve their work? And there's a lot of people who fall uh, you know, on the the theory why side of the uh, the, the McGregor balance yeah. and saying, well, yeah. you, know, you know, people are naturally motivated if they want to, they want to improve quality. They want to make their jobs easier. What incentive they, do they need? We need to just get out of their way versus some workplaces where I say, well, we're going to pay you um, for each idea. Do you, do you have some thoughts or I don't know, what that research might indicate? Oh, I, I would. I mean, I think that the research shows that the theory why folks are gen, generally right um, to, 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 a, to a point. Um, that is, if you um, if you if the main reason that you want to give a suggestion is to get money, then you're going to be focused on the money rather than the mm -hmm. suggestion. Now, that said, 
I think one of the things that hardens people's cynicism in the workplace is um, what you could call a lack of efficacy. That is, they'll make a suggestion and nothing will happen. No, oh, the dreaded suggestion box. Yeah, well, I think the suggestion box just, you know, sort of is, should, is, and, and, and fostered, is one of the things that's fostered a certain, you know, enormous amounts of cynicism in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So people, I think people will make suggestions and will be intrinsically motivated to improve things if their suggestions are taken seriously and if they're good suggestions, implemented. If it's simply this kind of kabuki theaters of, of <laughs> where you make a suggestion because the boss is trying to make it seem like he, he or she listens to your suggestion, then I actually think it does harm. Um, and, you know, in those, and if the, if the cynicism is so deeply rooted that the only way to show you're serious about suggestions is to pay for them, then that actually makes a little bit of sense. But I think in general, um, you know, a culture that prizes suggestions and, you know, again, to sort of appropriate some of the Kaizen language, continuous improvement, I think those things come organically. That's what it is to do your job. It isn't something separate. It's what you do. Now, when we talk about the the what we do and the why we do it, um, in in your book, you you lay out kind of a framework of what organizations can do um, to get engagement as opposed to just having compliant drones. those three points. Um, could, could you summarize um, those three points for the listeners who might not? Yeah. Know well, I, I think that uh, I think that of the uh, I think in terms of engage. Well, what, what I'm arguing here again, harvesting this 50 years of science from some incredible scholar, is that um, for complicated conceptual work, uh, carrots and sticks are less effective, far less effective than we think. And what really leads to enduring motivation for those sorts of tasks are autonomy, mastery. And purpose. Autonomy is a sense of self-direction. Uh, mastery is our desire to get better at something because we just like to get better at stuff. We like to improve our capacities. And also purpose is um, seeing that what you do connects to a larger whole, contributes to something larger than yourself. And I think when it comes to engagement, though, I think that autonomy is really the most important thing. And this goes back to Frederick um, Winslow Taylor and the whole notion of management itself, which is very much designed to get uh, compliance. I mean, that's the goal of management. And I, I, we do want some measure of compliance in our organizations, but what we really want is engagement. Mm-hmm. And I just think that, that you or I or you know any of your listeners or any human being, we don't engage by being managed. We don't engage by being controlled. The only way that you engage, I engage, human beings engage is if we get there under our own steam. And that's why I think that, you know, self-direction is the pathway to engagement. Um, and I just think that's what, it, I think that's how human beings are constituted. And if we try to manage people into engagement, it's inevitably going to fail. We're essentially using the wrong technology for the task. Right. So I think of the three, and when it comes to engagement per se, autonomy and self-direction are really the, the most important elements. Yeah, and you know, I think you know, the autonomy piece is, is so important, I think, to either my own work um, or people I work with in, in hospitals. Uh, there, there's often discussion within the lean framework in any setting of, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of compliance talk, unfortunately. Yeah, as opposed uh-huh. to engagement talk. How do we, you know, how do we get people to buy in? Which to me, you know, usually means how do we get people to do what I want 
to right. do. Right, right. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and there's all kinds of phrases that get thrown around of, you know, well, it's just because people don't like change. I think a lot of times it comes down to people just nobody likes to be told what to do, you know, to an overly detailed um, situation. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's true in, in general. I mean, you know, for, for the people who are skeptical of this, what I always do is say, you know, okay, tell me about the best boss you ever had. You know, describe the best boss you ever had. And you very rarely hear people describe the best boss they ever had like, oh, my, the best boss they ever had was she was awesome. She, she breathed down my neck the whole time. She <laughs> told me exactly what to do and how to do it. She gave me no discretion. I didn't grow at all, yeah. you know. You hear the, you hear the, you know, you hear different lyrics, but you hear the music of autonomy. And I just think that that's, you know, and I think that's even more necessary for, uh, creative and, uh, creative and, and conceptual work. Yeah. Now, I think what the interesting question is one that you've wrestled with, I know, in your work and in your blog and is, you know, how do you integrate a notion of, of autonomy and self-direction in a lean system that requires a certain amount of rule following, particularly in healthcare, where there are huge safety concerns as well. And I, I like the way you break down in, in the book, and as you've been talking about, the difference between algorithmic work and heuristic work. There's certainly, I think, elements of each in healthcare. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think sometimes, strangely, things get reversed where the things that are algorithmic, like how do you insert um, a central line into a patient. You know, that, that's mm -hmm. proven, like you said, from a patient safety standpoint. If that's done a very precise, consistent, certain way, people, yeah. people don't get infections using checklists right. Or, right. or lean methods. Yeah. And then there's heuristic work of, you know, the more creative, um, you know, diagnostic work sure. and the, the, the caring side of healthcare that you can't yeah. put into a procedure or a checklist. And it seems oftentimes in healthcare, people are left to do as they please on the algorithmic, and then for the heuristic work, they're being given overly top-down, oh, constraining uh -huh. Uh -huh. rules, uh -huh. <laughs> and so it, it seems like maybe things are reversed because you know healthcare is can be as bad as a stereotypical manufacturing environment in terms of being very top-down command and control, yeah. which is surprising considering healthcare certainly has purpose down. You know, yeah. that there's a lot of opportunity for mastery, but it's this autonomy piece and. That, that can trip people up. What's that? What's that right balance? Yeah, I don't know if there is a single. I don't know if there is a single right balance. I, I find it alarming that 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 trend that you're talking about. Uh, you know, as if we're going to have you know checklists for empathy. You know, first you say your name, then you look deeply into the patient's eye. Step three. You know, I just think that's kind of silly and in and in, in inhumane. Um, I, I think that there. I think it's possible to square the circle in a way, and in many ways, some of the um, you know, as a, as a, I'm not a patient, but as, you know, like any human being likely to be a patient at one point, you know, I, you know, want my doctor or nurse following a checklist if it's proven that a checklist is a, is a way to ensure my, uh, my safety. Now, the, the thing about that is that in a lot of that kind of environment, there, there, sh there needs to be a measure of autonomy in the sense that let's say in a, in a, you know, in a, in an operating theater, you know, if there's a checklist, say, and I'm just using, you know, check, I, I know the checklist and lean aren't interchangeable, but mm -hmm. if you just think about, um, you know, a certain checklist approach to, to surgery, there has to be autonomy in that operating theater because if like the head surgeon skips a step, then 
anybody there who knows the checklist has to be able to raise their hand and say, doctor, you forgot step four. Right. Um, and so there is autonomy in that kind of, uh, in that kind of system. And I think it's just a, you know, a matter of being algorithmic where algorithms work and being heuristic where heuristics work and trying to divine the, the, the difference between those two. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think that, and again, I, I just, you know, ironically, there's not an algorithm for that, <laughs> you know, for, for figuring that out. I mean, it's why it's, it's, it's the kinds of, you know, uh, it's the kind of tough, uh, uh, judgment calls that mm-hmm. go on. Now, I, I think that, you know, one of the great things about lean that I, that I'd like is, is the, is the collaborative nature of it. And right. I think in some ways, um, groups end up, the sort of group intelligence can help make that decision in an effective way. And I think, yeah, with, with the lean methodology or if you look at what Toyota teaches, I've heard them describe the balance of, you know, it's, it's every employee's job, you know, first to do the work as it's defined. And, and people have a role in defining that current best practice, if you will. Yeah. But then secondly, and this is what's missing in so many workplaces, is that you have an obligation, not just a right, but you have an obligation to help us improve that mm. method, which sounds mm. an awful like autonomy as opposed to you know, a top-down uh, model that says, here's the standard operating procedure, you know, follow it or you're fired. Right, right, which is a way to guarantee... Um the minimum level of compliance necessary for someone not to get fired. Right. Yeah, and I, you know, I work with some healthcare leaders that, you know, thankfully are moving away from, you know, just that compliance view because you know, from a practical standpoint, 24-7 operation, you know, this one leader I'm thinking of in particular came to the realization of, well, you know, even if I wanted to breathe down people's necks, I can't be there 24-7, and if I'm right. relying on compliance... Uh, people are only going to be compliant when someone's looking. And yep. so it's kind of you know, from whatever starting point you come from, I think a lot of people are starting to come to the realization that some of these methods either aren't right or they just don't work. And yep. I think a lot of that research you cite in your book kind of shows that. Anyway, one, one other scenario I might just throw out because it might be fun to discuss. If you look at incentives and, you know, if, if you want more of something, let's reward people for it. Let's you know, look at healthcare care in uh, hospital infections. Yeah. I mean, it seems like if the world were that easy that, you know, the, the basic physics level, as you called it, worked, yeah. you know, we could just add up the cost of, let's say, if, if all the infections that uh, our patients get cost us and society $50 million, why don't we just offer the employees collectively a $25 million bonus if they have right. zero infections? Right. Well, you know, uh, but if, if it were that easy, we, you know, we would already have that licked, right? We, we just can't offer prizes or... Or, or bribes for for good performance, right? No, and the other thing is, as a you know, there are other, there are other kinds of uh, there are other kinds of uh, unintended consequences of that, obviously, in that um, you it invites some measure of cheating. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, ooh, that thing that that guy has—that's not really an infection. That's something else. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm, or, oh, mm-hmm. maybe we shouldn't do this procedure on this guy because. He might be susceptible to an infection. So even though this might be the right approach medically, we don't want to take the risk because if he's prone to an infection, it's going to drive our numbers down. And so you have, you know, you have, and therefore screw up our bonus. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, one of the things about these contingent rewards is that they raise the salience, as psychologists would call it, of 
of money. And, you know, except if you're like a bond trader or uh, when most professionals raising the salience of money doesn't actually can impair performance. So, you know, if I go into, you know, I, I got three kids. Okay. So I take a kid into a pediatrician. We have an excellent pediatrician. So she would, I can't imagine her doing this, but imagine I, so if she retired and we had to go to another pediatrician and that pediatrician had some kind of elaborate incentive scheme, I don't want in that pediatrician's head, him or her saying, Ooh, I'm going to treat, what's the best way to get my bonus in treating this kid? I want my, I want the pediatrician to say, what's the best way to treat this kid? Right. And so, uh, so I think that's really the, I think that's really the, 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 the huge danger of those. Now that said, and I think that I, you might have even written about this is that, giving people the feedback on that and the mm-hmm. data on that can be very useful. Right. Um, it, it just doesn't necessarily need to be tangled up with money. So I've seen stuff, uh, I don't know what chapter and verse at all, but I remember hearing that giving doctors feedback and data on how they were performing relative to others actually ended up improving their performance. There wasn't a payoff for that. Mm-hmm. They just wanted the feedback and wanted to know, I mean, part of it could be ego and competitiveness. Right. Um, um, I think in this case, somewhat harnessed for good, although you can still have those same kinds of unintended consequences. But um, people, you know, want to know how they're people want to know how they're doing, and I think it, we innately want to do. I think we innately want to do better, and I think the, the the yearning to do better is very healthy. I think the yearning to do better in order to get money is less healthy in many contexts. Yeah, and I've seen a lot of situations where posting comparative results or data for different surgeons drives improvement, which seems whether you know you call it ego or competitiveness, yeah, seems yeah. to be driven by intrinsic motivation of well, you know, I want to be good, I want mastery, I want yeah. good outcomes for my patients because yeah. that's my purpose. Um, it, it, it's feedback. I mean, I, I think that's the I think that's a way to look at it. It's feedback on your performance, and you know, the truth is, is that. You know, you know, some performance is um, is needs to be assessed relatively. That is, I want to know whether I'm a good surgeon. I want to know uh, um, how I'm doing relatively. So, you know, if if I say that as a writer, if I sell you know X number of books and I think, wow, that's pretty good. Well, I don't really know whether that's any good unless I know what Joe Schmatz and Jane Schmidt and all these other people have done and where does it fit in relatively. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just, you know, again, I, there is, you know, it's not, com- my, my point is that it's not completely this kind of ennobled view that there are this, you know, especially with surgeons, I think, this form of kind of competitiveness, this desire to be number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can have all kinds of problems, but I think enriching the feedback in that kind of work or any kind right. of work is, um, really, really valuable because yeah. I think that workplace is, is largely a feedback desert for most yeah. people. Yeah. And, and, that ties into the ideas around annual reviews, where instead of continual feedback, people get a number at the end of the year, or they get one uh, meeting with their uh, boss. And you know, but um, it's back to the the idea on data. I mean, I think that data can be either used as inf- a source of information or a source yeah. for punishment. You're right to bring up the dysfunctions that would come if if surgeons were being punished. And I think it discounts you know the fact that let's say infection rates aren't strictly up to the scale exactly. of an individual exactly. surgeon, exactly. that there's exactly. systemic factors. Right, right, right. Um, um, and, I mean, you see this, I mean, I, it's, it's whether the, the um, uh, and there's, there's, there's research on this, too. It's, it's, it, and it's a very close analog 
analogy to, uh, to, to schools. And when we think about grades, I mean, you know, there's some people out there saying let's eliminate grades, and I don't necessarily buy that. But I think that we need to think about grades as a form of feedback. I think for many students, grades are the goal. That's the purpose. Right. That's why you study. Uh, and Carol Dweck and others have done a lot of research that shows that uh, when people pursue perform, this is in education, when people pursue performance goals, i.e., getting an A, um, that doesn't necessarily lead to learning. Um, that performance goals and learning goals are very different things. Now, in many cases, people who pursue learning goals end up performing reasonably well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the converse isn't true. People who, who pursue performance goals um, often have a kind of shallow, short-term understanding of the material that they're, they're supposedly learning, even though their grades and scores are high. Well, I was glad in your book that you mentioned um, Alfie Cohn, who I've... Yeah. Um, was fortunate to have interviewed previously, and when he talks about um, how those extrinsic rewards really do a number on people in terms of draining creativity um, out of a, a very young children even. I saw a story this week that said, you know, kids' creativity scores, I don't know how you score creativity in an objective way, but... There is a metric. There's a, it's, a, it's, it's, this, uh, it's called a Torrance test, that uh, metric of... Uh, divergent thinking and conceptual thinking. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's one way, yeah. But the, the recent news story I saw compared, I think, scores from 1990 to 2004 and how those scores have plummeted. And, and so the question being raised was, you know, is the focus on on scores and, and teaching to the test and, and some things that are maybe dysfunctional within education, is that getting worse and what impacts Well, I mean, kids? again, we know, you know, uh, both of us know that a correlation is not a cause and effect. That sure. said... <laughs> The, the this decline in creativity correlates almost perfectly with the rise in emphasis in standardized testing and extrinsic rewards. Yeah, I'm just saying. <laughs> um, well, well, Dan, this this has been great fun talking to you about. Um, boy, we just scratched the surface on some of the themes that are that are in your book drive. I would certainly encourage people listening if they haven't picked it up yet to. Um, grab their Kindle or, or order it on Amazon or go to, the, to their library. Um, you, you have a paperback version coming out? Paperback uh, version is coming out this spring, Mark, with some uh, some new material. Uh, and what I'm hoping will be um, uh, even more tools and tips and exercises for people. And if people want to read more, engage with you online, what, what are some ways they can find you? Via- well, you can, you can always find me online at, uh, at, at danpink.com, D-A-N-P-I-N-K.com. That's a, do a, a blog uh, somewhat frequently, and there are other kinds of stuff on there um, that people can find out about the books if they want, or we have some videos and all kinds of stuff, all for the low, low price of nothing. Are you working off of intrinsic motivation or something, Dan? <laughs> uh, well, I'm working on my own, you know, my own business model, which is, it would just, you and I were talking about this before, is to, is to lose money on every transaction but make it up in volume. Yeah. Uh, here, can I, can I tell you one quick story about blogging, though, before we wrap yeah, up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I started blogging in, in 2005, totally, you know, from that intrinsic motivation standpoint right. of enjoying to write and liking to interact with people who read my stuff and basically yeah. do it. Uh, for free. Now, I, there was a, a two-year period where a now defunct online publication was paying me, uh, you know, a sum, not a huge amount of money, every month to, to simply republish stuff that I had already written. You know, it was basically copy and paste and let them publish it on their website. And it felt like such drudgery 
oh, I've got to log in again. And, you know, and it was something they were paying me for. And, you know, it, it kind of clicked when, you know, reading your book and hearing you talk about this, that, well, wait a minute, I don't think, uh, I mean, I, you know, it, it seemed to at least kind of uh, fall in line with the idea of, um, you know, doing something you enjoy. Uh, not that I'm going to do all of my work for free. I need to put a roof over my head. But yeah, of course. It, it sort of struck me like, well, that, that was kind of odd. That something that should have been easy for a little bit of money wasn't nearly as fun as the creative process of writing something. Interesting. For very, free. very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. Ah, well, you're, you're kind to say my little indulgent story was no, interesting. No, no, it is. No, it is. That's totally, but it's totally consistent with it. It's very consistent yeah. with that. So. Well, uh, Dan Pink, and I, I was going to mention uh, in terms of, of, of intro, I'm proud you are uh, an alum of Northwestern University, and you're out there doing great work and um, well, ma- making us all proud. It's up to all of us Northwestern graduates to be out there blogging for free. <laughs> <laughs> But it was a real pleasure to uh, have you on the uh, the podcast um, today, and thanks for sharing uh, the ideas that are in your outstanding book drive. Uh, Mark, it's been a pleasure being on your podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.